Our uh, current sermon series is about biblical meltdowns. And so far, we've seen uh, Moses meltdown and Elijah meltdown. And uh, we've shown how the meltdowns fit into life as God uses them. But today, we're looking at someone and the only person in our sermon series who is not a believer, who is a pagan, and who is an enemy of the Israelites in most of his actions. He's a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And if you had a name like that, you'd need to be king to get respect. Do you know, um, we're conscious right now of the Middle East because of the current Israel-Hamas conflict. But, you know, sometimes we need to kind of take a mind trip and get the larger context in both space and time. Think of yourself as looking at a Google map or MapQuest or whatever you search on. If I put in a, 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 an address on my computer, I'm invited to either zoom in or zoom out. So I start with the address, and I zoom out, and I see, wow, that's in this area. And then I say, wow, that's in this country. That's in that continent. Well, that's in this globe. You could just zoom out till you see the whole world. Then you can zoom in again and see how we fit in that context. In a sense, I'm going to ask you to do that today, not just with space, but with time as well, because we're looking at the Israel Hamas conflict in the vision of people of the 20, uh, what century is it, 20th, 20, 30, 21st, 31st. And, um, and we today are going to look at the same area of the world at 500 years, 600 years before Christ. And uh, the, great, the great empire at this time was Babylon. This area, which is known as the Fertile Crescent because it's one of the earliest places where civilization started, has known empire after empire after empire. This is where people first settled down into agriculture. Between the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, this land was a place where they could do that and then develop towns and then cities and then great cities and then empires. And so there's a whole series of empires here. Now, the Babylonian Empire at that time included countries, modern countries, such as uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, all included in that empire. And uh, also, because you notice, if you go to the east from there, you're into Asia. If you go to the south through Egypt, you're in Africa. If you go to the north west, you're in Europe. So this was all the major trade routes of that period of time went through the Babylonian Empire. This was the 
second expression of Babylonian empire. And it was characterized, or is remembered, for having the person who's known as the greatest king and the greatest emperor of the greatest empire in history. I say this not just because it's my judgment, because it was the judgment of many of the, uh, of the following uh, the Greeks, the Romans, they looked back on this as the epitome of the empire. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was seen as the emperor uh, par excellence. So here was this great man. He was the right person for the right time. He's called Nebuchadnezzar II because there was an earlier one, but that was about 500 years earlier. And he had a kind of genius for ruling. He could not just conquer states, but he knew how to control them. And he did it in a unique way, by not by annihilating the population, but finding select leaders in that population and cultivating them under his power to accomplish his will. So that he wasn't wiping out the people. And that's part of why he took the Israelites into captivity and what we know as the Babylonian captivity. He ruled for 43 years. He built some great monuments. This is the Ishtar Gate made out of, of wonderful blue tiles and all kinds of images. It is now reconstructed in a museum in Berlin, Germany. And then the seven wonders of the world that were listed by Herodotus and the Greeks included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar built apparently because his, his wife, who was from a more tropical climate, missed the green things. So this was his gift to her. Um, meanwhile, on that map that we were looking at, that little dot on the west that's, that's Palestine, there was something going on there that related to Nebuchadnezzar. The great emperor of the great empire cared about this little tiny country. And we read about him in the Old Testament. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned, I did, I, this blew my mind to realize this, he's mentioned 90 times in the Old Testament. In, in the books of history, uh, Kings and Chronicles, and then in the prophecies of Jeremiah, and then in the book of Daniel, and the passage we're going to look at today. Mostly he's presented as the epitome of evil because he so enslaved the people of Israel and he destroyed the city. He, he marched on the city first in 526 BC and then later, uh, since they were still rebellious, he came in 586 BC and he, um, I got those dates backwards probably, right. So he, he uh, then destroyed Solomon's beautiful temple and laid the city flat and took many captives back into Babylon where he could use them and watch them. And yet Jeremiah, three times as he refers to Nebuchadnezzar, calls him, in, as God is speaking, he says, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. It's amazing, you know, it's like saying, my servant Vladimir Putin. Or put your own name in there. 
whoever you don't like. But every ruler in the universe ultimately is God's servant. That's the point. And Jeremiah shows how the things that Nebuchadnezzar meant for evil, God turned for good. Like many rulers, he was merely an instrument of God in the end. Um, it came to me that God is in charge of those in charge. And it's very humbling to recognize that if you have any authority in your world. So then there's Daniel. Now, Daniel was one of a group of young Israelites who were brought back to Babylon and they were being groomed by the king. That's a good word. They were being groomed by Nebuchadnezzar to be his agents from a Hebrew background to accomplish his will. And so they were being trained over the long haul. And we read about them in Daniel's book. It's quite interesting. And it's the first four chapters focus on Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to go through this and, uh, and go on a, a, a wonderful trip today. We're going to start with Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Isn't that interesting? You know, the person you think's on top of the world and they don't have a worry, they might be looking over their shoulder at someone who's trying to take down their kingdom. And it is true that Nebuchadnezzar had to run from place to place to restore his authority, even though he was the greatest emperor of the greatest empire. So, verse 2, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters... Now, Nebuchadnezzar was also known as being very religious, but he was very religious in every way imaginable. He was... He, he affirmed all kinds of religions, and it was almost like he, if I believe in every god, then one of them is going to help me. And so these were people representing various religious groups, and they were practitioners of the edgy, supernatural, maybe prayer. They're called magicians here. Magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, he summoned to tell the king his dreams. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. And then we read that the Chaldeans, which is one nationality group there, and they said, uh, well, tell us the dream and then we'll give you the answer. The king said, I don't remember the dream. I just know I'm really upset. Well, if you can't tell us a dream... How can you expect us to remember it? Well, Daniel was brought in as representing another religious group, the Jews. And verse 19, the mystery, uh, Daniel was brought in and he said, you've got to give me time. He didn't say, tell me what the dream is, because he understood that the king didn't remember. But he said, give me time. He went home and slept on it. But God sent him a vision, verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And there's an outburst of praise as Daniel recognizes and acknowledges 
that God is the one who has given him the answer. He makes it clear to Nebuchadnezzar. Now we'll skip down to verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon because they couldn't answer, tell him what the dream was about or what the dream was. And he said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will give the king the interpretation. Well, that's putting himself out there. And then verse 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals the mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Your dream, the visions of your head, as you lay in bed were these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts. Now he tells them, here's what you saw, and now I'm going to tell you what it means, okay? Came, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be hereafter, telling you about What's going to happen next and after that? And the revealer of mysteries disclosed to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom I have more than any other living being, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Verse 31. You were looking, O king, and there appeared, here's the vision, a great statue. That statue was huge. It's brilliance, extraordinary. You can imagine, as Daniel is saying this, that King Nebuchadnezzar was having these memories click in, and he was remembering the dream as Daniel re reminded him from what God had told him. And it's, th this statue was huge. It's brilliance, extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its midsection and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Wow, that's weird. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. You ever, ever hear the phrase, somebody has feet of clay? That's where it comes from. As you looked... As you looked on, a stone was cut out, another stone, not by any human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. Okay, is your mind blown? Here's a picture of the statue, <coughs> photograph taken that day. So there's, there's the head of gold, there's the silver in the shoulder area, breastplate, then the bronze in the middle, then the iron, 
and the feet of clay. And the mountain behind it kind of indicating that's where the stone is going to come from. This is just a, an artist's rendering of that. But we'll go on now with verse 36. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hands he has given human beings wherever they live, the wild animals of the field and the birds of the air, whom he has established as ruler over them all. Remember that, ruler over not only all humans, but the animals of the field as well. You, the great king, king over all kings, you are the head of gold. We kind of knew that, didn't we? That Nebuchadnezzar was re reassured by that. But then, verse 39, after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. At least it's inferior. But And then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, just as iron crushes and smashes everything, shall crush and shatter all of these. Let's stop right there. There's a whole library of prophecy written about this. And the, the, the vision that it started early and then developed through church history and is taught today in modern prophecy is that this represents the kingdoms that were to come. The Babylonian kingdom, uh, the head of gold, the Medo-Persian kingdom that was soon going to take over from the Babylonians. That's the silver. The bronze is the Greek kingdom of Alexander the Great and those who followed him. The iron is the Roman kingdom, and the feet of clay, people in, uh, in the Middle Ages, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, the mixture of the church and the, uh, uh, and, and the secular rule was the clay mixed with iron, and that didn't work, and so that was going to be destroyed. You know, all those details we can talk about some other time, but it's important to notice that the whole mess ultimately is going to be destroyed by a big rock. And the big rock is the real kingdom of God. So we're going, to, we're going to skip all the prophetic details and just look at what this meant to Nebuchadnezzar. That things are coming, that they're going to change, and all of this means ultimately, verse 44, the days of those kings, the God of heaven, will in those day, days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Wow. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God, now notice he had just talked to told Nebuchadnezzar how great he was. Now, the great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Wow. Okay, bottom line, after you get through all the stages, is that this statue that's being built with you as the head is really unstable in the, in the end true kingdom of God is going to uh, uh, attack and destroy it, ultimately. 
and eternally. Well, and that, that of course, is another photograph that was taken of the king's dream. What was the king thinking at, when all of this was... He, 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 he responded, he, he knew Daniel was telling the truth, and he responded in that way. And he actually rewarded Daniel and built up his place in the kingdom, and this became important later on. But what did the emperor actually do with this knowledge about the, about the uh, many metals in the bronze statue? Look at this. This is fascinating. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This, my answer is, it's not just the head that's going to be gold. Whole thing's going to be gold. It's all me. So rather than being humbled by this, he became proud. And he reasserted himself. And let's look at verse 2. The king sent for the satraps the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers. This is all the, the somebodies. And the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, this whole list of people again, they all came to the dedication of the statue. And when they were standing before the statue, that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, that's a tuba, certainly. <laughs> the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, whatever that is, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Take that other statue out of here from my dreams. Here's the truth. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of all these instruments again, then uh, they fell down, worship the golden statue, the king that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Wouldn't you? Uh, but these friends of Daniel, whom Shadrach, they're named in the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, I don't remember. As a kid, we were supposed to remember those names. I can't remember the first two, but the last one was To Bed We Go. <laughs> and these, these three guys were thrown into a superheated furnace, and then they... They uh, survived that. And they were seen walking around as if there was another angel or some other being with them protecting them. That's happened right there. But uh, something else happened. begins in chapter 4, verse 13, and it is a second dream that came to Nebuchadnezzar. And this dream is described in verse 13. I continued looking in the visions of my head, as I lay in bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. Now, 
Holy Watcher is a weird word. It's a, it, it, it really probably comes from Babylonian religion, but it's, we've, it gets into some modern um, horror stories, you know, watchers are kind of e evil demonic presences. But, uh, but here he's using languages that was part of his religious circle. And this holy watcher was a superhuman being, came down from heaven, and he cried aloud, and, and then there's a summary about a tree, uh, uh, there's a, 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 a description about a tree that will be cut down and torn apart. But the stump and roots will remain. And then, verse 14, it says, let his mind be changed from that of a human and let the mind of an animal be given to him. And let seven times pass over him. What? And then there's more describing this. So Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel this dream because he has no option. Nobody else can help him. And when he tells Daniel the dream, actually the text says of Daniel that his thoughts terrified him. Daniel's thoughts. When he saw what the dream meant. But the king said, I want to hear it. And here it is, verse 20. The tree that you saw, which grew great and strong so that it's... The top, its top reached to heaven, was visible to the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, which provided food for all, under which animals of the field lived, in whose branches the birds of the air had nests. It is you. Surprise? It is you, O king. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased, and it reaches to heaven and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven, saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze in the gr grass of the field, and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field until seven times pass over him. What? This is the interpretation, O king, and it is a decree, I wouldn't dare say this, it is a decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord, the king. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and you shall be bathed with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. You imagine why Daniel was terrified to bring this prophecy? But he did. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you, Atone for all your, for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. That is, turn around, king. Start treating people decently. <clears throat> now, a year later, a year later after that dream, something amazing happened. I guess the king didn't learn his lesson or didn't take the lesson. A year later, verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. 
He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king said, is not this magnificent Babylon which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came down from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, the kingdom is taken from you. You shall be driven away from human society. Your dwelling will be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society. He ate grass like oxen. His body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails became like bird's claws. That's the meltdown. I think there's additional irony. This is, this is a wonderful painting. It's by William Blake, who was a, 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 a unique artist and poet. But I think he got what, what all this says. And if you get a close-up of the face, you'll see the, 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 the absolute horror that Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing. Blake was, well, you should read some of his stuff. I'll talk to you if you want to be guided into something. In 1795, this was done. But isn't it ironic that he was made into a, an animal that eats grass, not even a predator? They glorified powerful animals in Babylon, the symbols of lions and bears and dragons. But a cow munching on grass? This is the king. But, you know, did it happen? Is this a made-up story? Well, there's an interesting thing about this, a couple of things. One, nobody in the account of Nebuchadnezzar outside of the Bible talks about this. But there is a strong tradition of King Nabonidus, who was actually his grandson, uh, becoming th the mad king of Babylon and actually going mad and leaving office because of that. So there was this memory of something like that. And also, there's a period of time in Nebuchadnezzar's rule, as far as the other records are concerned, when for some reason the rule was being... Um, uh, administered by the queen instead of the king. Maybe that was a period. It's a powerful, powerful story and analogy and metaphor. However, it we really happened if we could see it ourselves. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, and see how this story is concluded. When that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored the one who lives forever, for his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth 
are accounted as nothing, and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. Isn't that interesting? For the glory of my kingdom. And remember, these people were dependent on a strong ruler. There was no democracy back then. But this strong ruler had to be an, a human, humanitarian and leading from a, a position of, of understanding. So he was restored with that understanding that he learned something from this. Now, verse 17, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven and will go on with his praise for God in this situation. Uh, if the timing that we understand from this is correct, that he ruled for many more years and uh, ruled with success. And the Israelites in spite of the pain and suffering, actually blossomed in the Babylonian captivity period. And some good things happened. God used that period of time. I don't know whether we can say that Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson, but I think we can say for sure Nebuchadnezzar's meltdown became a lesson. Became a lesson for all of us since. David, at one point, uh, talking about Saul and Jonathan, Saul the king and Jonathan his son, said, how the mighty have fallen. And uh, that kind of sticks in our minds. It's become a phrase in our, in our culture. But the lessons here I would like to share with you finally. First of all, the mighty always fall. The mighty always fall. The greatest emperor of the greatest empire falls. And he had other, it wasn't just his final death, but even this humiliating moment in his life. And you have, there are powers in your life, authorities and rulers, and they frustrate you and they even put you down they're going to fall. The mighty always fall. Whether they're a philosophy in the world today that you can't deal with or circumstances in your life or people in your life. You can put a spouse's name in there or a parent or a boss. The mighty always fall. Secondly, the mighty are fearful and insecure. This begins with a, a revelation of how insecure Nebuchadnezzar was. He had a bad dream, couldn't deal with it. He called everybody in to help him deal with it. Re remember, the, the person who's most intimidating to you goes home and has bad dreams. Down deep, the mighty are fearful and insecure. You quake when you see them. Actually, they quake when they see you. And that's often why they bully you or come down on you or whatever else. And that when you realize this, that fear is in them, you can handle things a lot differently. And then also, the mighty have no ultimate power. 
not, not in your life. They, they can't really stop you. Um, the circumstances can't stop you. Even death can't stop you. Their mighty have no ultimate power. And then the mighty are most at risk when they build statues. And think of this as for yourself because, you know, you are mighty for someone else. You are an authority person in someone else's life. You're an achiever when someone else lost their job or whatever else. When you build a statue, when you brag, or, or when you feel mighty, when you get recognition, awards, titles, promotions, that's when you're most vulnerable. You're building a statue. Remember, at the bottom of the statue is there are feet of clay. You've got to remember that. And then finally, uh, the mighty are really in trouble because there is really only one who is mighty. And all of us, I mean, whatever, whatever we feel now that makes, makes your, you know, you feel weak when you think of some relationships, but there's some relationships where you feel kind of muscular. That's one you should be concerned about. And, 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 and maybe, maybe there are times in our lives when we need to ask God for a meltdown. You ever felt like that? It, it's the beginning of a rebuilding process. You need to know your place before you can take your place. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good examples in the Bible and for the bad examples. We thank you for the consistency of how people measure up against your ultimate uh, infinity and greatness and goodness. We, we are all just shriveled images reflecting you, and we need to be reminded of that. If there's any spirit of Nebuchadnezzar in us, uh, help us to be melted down. And if there are any people who are feeling like Nebuchadnezzar in our lives or circumstances, help us to realize how the mighty have fallen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.